0: We are in the season of Eastertide. So in the season of Eastertide, it's 40 days uh, during the Christian year right after Resurrection Sunday where we celebrate Christ's resurrection and celebrate our own resurrection that we have hidden in Christ. And we celebrate the fact that death is finally defeated, our sins are forgiven, and now we live as sons and daughters of our King. And so uh, to that end, let us open in a word of prayer. Lord, uh, you have risen. You've forgiven our sins, and uh, through your rising of your Son, uh, our righteousness has been obtained, and now our lives are hidden in Christ. And so help us as we explore some of the aspects of that good news as we dig into your Scripture. Give us clarity, uh, seeing your resurrected Son in the midst of the ambiguity of our world. And I pray that we would have resurrection joy as we leave this morning and as we go to our lunch tables, as we break bread together and share good stories and eat good food and uh, have a heartitude of gratitude. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, So, ten years ago, my wife, Susan, and I, we didn't have kids. We have kids now. I'll get to them in a second. (laughs) Uh, Ten years ago, my wife and I experienced a whole lot of Bad stuff, just a lot of chaos, all at one time, where things in our life were not lining up the way that we thought they would. There's a lot of dreams being shattered all at once, and so um, I just want to share a few minutes of that because it was pretty, it was pivotal for us, for Susan and I. We are we were newly married ten years ago. Uh, we moved out from the city to the suburbs of Woodridge, where I took my first job. And uh, we put a down payment on a condo. It wasn't even built yet. We got to watch the condo building get built, and we were very excited and anticipating good things. And uh, at that time, when we put down the final payment, we now had a brand new mortgage. Uh, The church I was working at at, ended up closing. My job was cut. And so (laughs) we had this new, brand new mortgage, and the church was no longer meeting on Sunday mornings. Uh, so my wife and I thought well, this is a good time to go to seminary, <laughs> which isn't usually a good time to go to seminary when something like that happens. But um, so we decided to put the condo on the market and go to seminary. Susan started a part-time job uh, in Chicago in the Woodridge at Starbucks, and I started to commute to seminary take some great classes. And we put the condo on the on the, on the market, and this was at the uh, the. We bought at the height, and it crashed a few months later. And so in 2006, y'all remember some of that. So uh, so that was hard trying to sell our condo that way, but even something crazier happened. So we ha- we live in a condo, and on the third floor, there is a pool, and there's this deck. And we call it a cantilever deck. It just kind of overhangs off to the side of the building. But one day, that fell off. Just fell right off, three floors down. So uh, nobody died. Uh, no one was out there by the time which was... Is- but we now had a new infinity pool overlooking the golf course. There's no, it was a straight down. Uh, so uh, we were not going to we were not able to sell our condo at all. So I needed I needed work, and so uh, at that time as well as we were as I was traveling to St. Louis, I was interviewing for church jobs down there as a music director. Uh, and so in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, Susan and I asked ourselves, What in the world is God doing? <laughs> what is, I mean, it was. Our marriage was, I forgot to tell you, our marriage was in a hard spot too, which threw us into therapy. I mean, it was just a whole lot of bad stuff happening at one time. What in the world is God doing? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, and it was on brain science. And the, the speaker on the podcast was saying that our brains love certainty. We love to know that the guesses that we make about the future are going to be right and going to be correct. On the flip side, what our brains hate is ambiguity. Uh, we, our brains, and we end up (laughs) freaking out because of it, hates the fact that we don't know how to discern what the future is. We can't make a good decision about an outcome in the future. Um, And some of you know about this, right? Some of you, we we react in different ways. Some of us, it leaves us frustrated. Some of us, it leaves us anxious. Some of us, it leads to depression. The speaker said that the problems that we face really um, fall into kind of two categories. One is a negative situation you can't get out of, Right? So you're facing an ambiguous situation. It's a negative situation you can't get out of, or you're imagining the situation that's coming your direction and you don't know how to avoid it. There's a problem you're imagining it's coming your way and you don't know how to avoid it. Um, so, for example, I was chatting with a friend not too long ago, and he was talking about this is I'm going to show, hopefully a couple of examples of the way ambiguity shows up in different areas of our lives. One is our vocation. My friend was talking about how his boss, every day he goes into work, he doesn't know how that boss is going to respond. Is the boss going to be kind? Is the boss going to be vindictive? Is the boss going to be mad at him for something? You know. So that type of ambiguity doesn't lead to a whole lot of flourishing. It makes you frustrated. It can make you anxious as you go in through the work doors. Or about relationships. Some of you, like I've been in the past, have been in conflict in relationships. And you don't know how to navigate going forward. Or you don't even know how to avoid it. Right. So there's ambiguity there. Uh, parenting. Uh, Susan and I are in the midst of a vortex of ambiguity in our parenting life right now. Um, that girls just turned to a couple months ago, and we did not see this coming. Just the it's oh, that's later. That's, that's <laughs> I can tell you more if you want to have observe to what that looks like. But we're just in a really hard spot. We're just we don't know how to navigate going forward being parents. Uh, the election cycle coming up, right? Lots of ambiguity there. Is enough said. Uh, students. Um, High school even college, I mean, the last four to six years of high school, your life is kind of surrounded in ambiguity, in particular, this one question what are you going to do with your life, or where are you going to go to college, or uh, how are you going to pay for college? If you're in college now, you might be asking, can I get a job in this market? What am I going to do for the rest of my life? I have all these student loans, right? So there's ambiguity there. Or even if you're a small child, you're scared to fall asleep at night because you have nightmares. And you don't know how to stop having nightmares. And it's just hard to fall asleep. So our brains love certainty. We hate ambiguity. And that's why so many of our prayers end up being like Susan and I, 10 years ago, and even now. <laughs> Wait, don't what in the world is God doing. Why am I this way? How can I get out of this mess? And that hopefully that sets a little bit of the, a bigger context for our passage this morning because uh, the Jewish nation, people are asking the same question. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been oppressed by the um, Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, and now the Romans. And they have this puppet king called uh, Herod the Great, who's on behalf of the Roman uh, emperors, serving as their king over the Jews. And so they're asking this question, what is God doing? When is he going to send the Messiah and relieve us from all this oppression? When will we be able to flourish again? And Matthew's gospel is really trying to provide some clarity on this. He wrote the gospel as an evangelistic tool to his Jewish brothers and sisters to show them that Jesus is the true Messiah, the Messiah in the line of King David, and that all the Old Testament promises given to Abraham are coming true in him, and, all, and salvation is coming to the world through Jesus. But now Matthew has to answer the question, what is God doing now that this Messiah king is dead? He's been crucified, and now he's dead. Have you ever been in a situation where you're worrying about something, or you're anxious, or you're looking on a past decision. You're looking at your situation now, and you're going back, and you're thinking, how did I get here? And you start trying to connect some dots. Like, maybe if I said this differently, or if I did this differently, it would be different. That's what Matthew's kind of doing a little bit here. He's trying to connect the dots. So he's looking back to the Old Testament to see how the crucifixion and death of Jesus makes sense. And he's going to give us three miracles that we're going to look at. The first miracle is going to be uh, the temple curtain being torn in two. The resurrection of holy saints and the confession of a Roman centurion. All right. So we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament a little bit. And Matthew, he mentions that at the time of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, that's the, he's the, that's the only time in his gospel, none of the other gospel writers mention that the veil is torn from top to bottom. The veil is torn in, in the other writings, but not from top to bottom. And he's trying to reemphasize that this is an act of God, what's happening. But to really understand the significance of this, we need to know a little bit about the story of the Bible. Some of you might be new to the church or new to hearing about the Bible, Um, but some of us have been around for a while, and it's good to remember that, that at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that God created all things out of love in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They worked together to create all things. And in this creation, there was absolute clarity and absolute harmony. All creation knew their vocation as it related to God's love and His design. He created humans to be in relationship with Himself and His presence was always available to Adam and Eve. There's nothing standing in the way of God's presence. There was absolute clarity in how Adam and Eve were to live out their vocation. Right, They were to have babies, and subdue the earth, eat all this food, don't eat the food from this one tree. They were supposed to create an environment of flourishing where all creation saw their beauty and their work for the glory of God and for the common good. But Adam and Eve failed. They ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from. And as a result of it, their relationship with God was shattered. Instead of clarity, there was ambiguity. Instead of order, there was disorder. Instead of harmony, there was dissidence. But the most devastating part of this sin, what happened to Adam and Eve's relationship was now shattered. His full presence was no longer available to them. And you want to talk about ambiguity. They had no idea how to live in relationship with this God because he is holy and now they were unholy. And instead of walking with him in Eden, they now hid from him. So, God's presence went from something to being desired to now something that is dangerous. And we later learned that humanity couldn't be in the presence of, of a holy God without fearing for their own lives, right? That's where we see people in the Old Testament talking about, and even in the New Testament, when they come in contact with God, they say, Woe is me, I'm a man that's unclean. I'm as good as dead. So, if God was going to dwell with the unholy people, it had to be mediated, there had to be protection. And this protection looked like a veil. And if we remember uh, in the Old Testament, Moses received the law and designs to create a tabernacle. And this tabernacle was the means in which God was going to dwell with his people. And so he had an outer wall in this tabernacle, which was placed in the center of the camp, and all of Israel was camped around it in the wilderness. The the tabernacle was really like a movable, portable tent. That's what it was. And every so often, God would come down in the form of a cloud over the camp, or over the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. So, in the tabernacle, inside the inner part of of the court, the courtyard that they created, there's a place called the Holy of Holies. And once a year, a high priest could go in and make sacrifices and experience the presence of God and not die. So, here we have one person once a year can experience the presence of God and live. Well, years later, um, once they settled into the Holy Land, they built the temple, which was like a tabernacle but with a lot more ornate stones and materials. It was beautiful. It was something to behold. But that was later destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And now we come to Herod the Great. Herod the Great built a temple for the Jewish people as a way to kind of win their affections. It didn't really work, uh, but he built it nonetheless. And that is in that temple is where the curtain was torn when Jesus died. And the curtain was massive. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and it was made up of 32 twisted plates and 24 threads each. Now I had to do a little research. on I don't knit, but I, I would. I think of it as um, a lot of you know some some of you who wear bracelets that may be like three or four or five pieces of yarn kind of threaded together, and like that would might be a plate. I think. Um, so this is 24 threads, probably not as refined as we have our thread today, but um, 24 threads woven together, 72 times, and you know somehow pressed together, and this ended up being a very thick curtain. And so you just couldn't tear it like a piece of paper. So that's why Matthew's saying, from top to bottom, God is actually rending this, this, this curtain too. So the veil signifies something. It signifies the end of an old system. Right? The tearing of the veil signified the end of an old system. No more levels of access to God. God's people no longer needed protection from his presence. That through the tearing of Christ's flesh, we now can experience the full presence of God. And we read that earlier in our service from Hebrews, right? Therefore, God since he we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So what, is, what in the world is God doing? Well, Matthew's saying that in the ambiguity of the death of Jesus, we begin to see with clarity that the tearing of the veil, that God is restoring his presence to his people. We no longer are exiled from God's presence, but we're embraced through Jesus. So Matthew attempts to bring some more clarity here in our second miracle, which is the resurrection of saints. So let me just read this again. First, sorry, in verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, that's Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. So I'm going to go on to uh, point three, which is the confession of... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're going to hang out here for a minute. You're all awake. Um, this is actually what draw me to this passage. You know, we, we tend to skip over this on Good Friday readings and those types of things because we just don't know what to do with it. It's kind of awkwardly placed. Um, so let me just... A reminder, we're going to go back to the Old Testament because Matthew's making sense to his... Trying to make sense of this crucifixion of Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament. And it's interesting that the Jews had a really developed theology of resurrection. Some of us think of resurrection today in the New Testament through Jesus, but they actually had a developed theology of resurrection. We read it in the passage in Ezekiel for the call to worship this morning. And I'm going to read two more. There are just two verses here. One from Isaiah 26. It's beautiful language. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust... Awake and sing for joy. For your due is the dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. And from Daniel 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. So he's making this Old Testament connection here. Resurrection is promised. It will happen. But let's just take a look at this a peculiar resurrection that we see here of these saints. Um, here's, here's what we know, just four points. The tombs that were opened, were it was a miracle itself, but it was probably uh, what happened was through the earthquake these tombs were opened. There's an earthquake that happened in verse 51. Those in the tombs were raised weren't just anybody, but these were faithful followers of God. They were called holy ones in the Greek, which often is interpreted saints. Now these saints didn't come out of the tombs until Jesus' own resurrection, which there was an earthquake that happened then as well. And then they walked around Jerusalem and hung out with people. That's all we know. I did a lot of reading trying to figure out, oh, there's got to be like a hidden meeting, you know, digging, and there's nothing. I mean, if you, if you, go, if you go much beyond this, it's, you get into speculation. And that's not helpful, helpful for us. But what is really surprising about this passage, the one thing, is that nobody was anticipating a pre-resurrection to the resurrection, the general resurrection that happens when Jesus comes back. So Jesus and the holy ones, the holy saints, are there. Are just like a is a pre-resurrection. So uh, we you know we see this outside, except for yesterday during the blizzard. But if you take a walk when the weather's nice, uh, you begin to see um, plants begin to sprout out of the ground. Not 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 all the plants are out yet, but there's this anticipation that. Once spring is fully on, we'll see a whole radiance of colors and things in bloom. But before that all happens, you begin to see kind of this pre-resurrection happen with new life coming out of the ground. That's what we have here. That's what we have here. This pre-resurrection shows us that the resurrection promised in the Old Testament and what we see in the New Testament will actually happen. Because there is a resurrection that took place, Jesus and these saints see what makes sense just like the sprouts coming out of the ground that's a guarantee that there's going to be a a resurrection of new life of plants happening when spring comes around full force Um, so just as the veil splitting in two is signifying a new reality in how we relate to God the resurrection of, of, of Jesus and these saints shows us that there's a new age of redemption taking place that through the death of Jesus life is now ours Its grip is broke. Death's grip is broken. And we don't die just to become dirt, but we die to be raised again in the final resurrection. And, and, yeah, and so there's this um, pastor who, this quote on this here, it's very beautiful. He said, for many generations, respectful, respectful people have honored the graves of dead saints by visiting them, but Jesus honors the saints by raising them. I think that's just beautiful. For many generations, respectful people have honored the graves of dead saints by visiting them, but Jesus honors the saints by raising them. And for some of you, maybe many of you, um, you've had loved ones die way too soon, way before they should have. Some of you have buried children or have lost children in the womb. And so my hope is, even with this one miracle, that we begin to see resurrection life and hope in the midst of death and tragedy that some of you have experienced. Um, and finally, going on to our third miracle, we see Matthew bring some clarity to the death and crucifixion of Jesus. In my opinion, this is verse 54, this is the confession of the centurion. In my opinion, this is the greatest of the three miracles, partly because it's the most clear <laughs> of the three miracles. And again, we've got to go back to the Old Testament to see what Matthew's doing here. So in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see God promising Abraham that through him, he's going to bless all the nations. Not just the Jewish nation, but all the nations. And through him, salvation is going to come. And so we see a glimpse of this promise coming true in the Roman centurion's confession. Now the centurion and his guards have seen lots of crucifixions. This is just what Romans did to punish uh, horrible offenders and criminals during that time. But everything surrounding Jesus' crucifixion uh, convinced him that the words ascribed upon Jesus' cross on the top, King of the Jews, was actually true. Between the earthquakes happening, when there's utter darkness in the middle of the day when the land should have been illuminated by the sun, how Jesus treated his enemies and how he was kind and even silent before his accusers, while he was being mocked by the Roman soldiers, while he was being reviled by the robbers who were hanging next to him on on their own crosses, Of all the chaos and ambiguity of the crucifixion, we have a pagan, Gentile, Roman centurion bringing absolute clarity and testifying and confessing surely this is the Son of God. So you might find yourself in a moment, we kind of do, it's like our weeks are built around ambiguity, but you might find yourself in a big moment or in a small, like what in the world is God doing? And there's a lack of clarity in how you proceed in life. And some of you might be here exploring Christianity. You might be skeptical of this whole Christian thing, skeptical that Jesus is even raised from the dead and how it changes everything. I want to encourage you that I found Trinity a really safe place to explore doubt and skepticism. It's a really welcoming community, so I want, you to, I want to encourage you to continue that conversation if you're having that with us. So if we're in the midst of ambiguity and we want some clarity moving forward, there's just two things I want us to consider. One, um, First thing is, is begin with a confession and acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. We were made for relationship. We were made for relationship with the Lord God, but in our sin, that relationship was severed. But through Jesus, we've now been reconciled. And so if you want to understand and make, you know, understand and get some clarity in your life, it first begins with confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Because in it, we see the promises of God all coming True. The second thing is is to step and live into this new idea of, not a new idea, but just an idea of resurrection clarity. And there's two things. Resurrection clarity, I think, has two parts and we can get from our passage. One, the presence of God is no longer confined to a building. I mean, we met in a school in Hinsdale today. We meet, we rent this church building here, and other churches around the world meet quietly in their homes. Like churches in China or in the Middle East, that they fear for their lives, and they meet quietly in their homes. Right? It's not confined to a physical building like it was with the tabernacle and the temple. Your new vocation now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to take that presence of Jesus everywhere you go. and how you parent, and how you treat your employers, how you treat your employees, and how you make deals. Your new vocation is to extend the presence of Jesus in thought, word, and deed. And we do this because of the second thing. Resurrection hope. Resurrection brings us hope. The resurrection of Jesus and of the saints in our passage points to the fact that God, through Jesus, is making all things new. Everything is being made new through Jesus. Everything is being redeemed through him. And so when we carry his presence into the world, we're also carrying that resurrection hope with us. And it's important to note that if we don't live out this resurrection clarity in our lives, um, we will continue to live, and the world will continue to live, in the shadows of ambiguity the shadows of ambiguity and many of you know this you see this you see this all around us right people are afraid they're afraid of their bank accounts they're afraid of their dying bodies they're afraid of uh, looking old they're afraid of the election process who's going to be the next supreme court justice they're afraid of, of difficult relationships um, people are using their vocations for personal gain and not for the flourishing of the common good of other people and we were not meant to live in the shadows of ambiguity, but we are to take the resurrection clarity into the world and bring the presence of Jesus with us. So Susan and I, 10 years ago, uh, in the quiet desperations of our hearts, uh, were asking, what, what in the world is God doing? I mean, it's almost a comedy of Arizona. It's just, what is happening? Um, and we spent a lot of time remembering God's goodness to us. It was what was helping us get this through. And in the end, God was good. We were able to pay for that mortgage, right? Susan, I was able to get some part-time work, actually at Trinity before I came on full-time staff. Um, we found a great therapist to help us in our marriage and learn how to fight well. Anyone know how to fight well? That's a, that's a skill, but it is important you learn how to fight well. Uh, and so we had a great therapist who helped, helped us in our marriage and walked with us. And... Around that time, we kind of stumbled into Trinity Presbyterian Church 10 years ago. And I'll tell you, this church has helped us uh, bring clarity to our lives um, by, by just really two things: one, by sharing the presence of Jesus with us when we really needed it, and helping us live out a resurrection hope. That's really what they were doing. And uh, so we were really grateful for that. And so that is what our, my prayer for our church. I'll be praying for us just shortly, that we continue to do that, that we extend the presence of Jesus to each other and to the world, and we're bringing along with us this resurrection hope uh, that we saw Matthew touch on in these passages. So let me close this in prayer. Well, Lord, uh, we're reminded by the beautiful sunshine this morning uh, that we got to experience driving in, even as we see now, that your resurrection hope extends throughout all the world, Nothing can really hide from it. The only thing that blinds us from it is our own sin. And so we ask for your forgiveness and help us to see what you're doing. Even as we, even as we get to see these beautiful plants spring up before everyone, all the other plants take, take place and, and, and bloom, that we're reminded of this resurrection reality. That because of you and these other saints that raised from the dead, when you did... Our resurrection hope is guaranteed, it's sealed, the deal is done, and we are ever grateful for it. Help us to live into that resurrection clarity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.